As we get started, uh, as I think Neil has already mentioned in the announcements, we're in a sermon series today uh, in the, over the last six weeks where we're talking about in his image. And today we're talking about the value that he places on the life of the age. If you're visiting here today or if you've not been here for some of these others, uh, we're looking at human beings through the lens of a biblical worldview. And three weeks ago, uh, Jim spoke on radical expressive individualism, and that's basically the idea that the highest good that we pursue is individual freedom and happiness. And anything at all that restricts the pursuit of those things is bad, and it should be discarded or reimagined. And of course, the foundation of this, if you go back before three weeks, was just the Word of God and how it's authoritative, useful for applying to our life in all situations. So that's the foundation on which all of these are being built on. So three weeks ago, radical expressive individualism. Two weeks ago, the foundational fact and the through line through all of these about we being made in the image of God from Genesis 1. And then last week, we talked about an application of that, a biblical worldview versus a secular worldview, and how these things can be into conflict in places where our culture is diverging from what God teaches in his word. So we started last week with the beginning of life and how we are image bearers, and that begins in the womb. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, and we have intrinsic worth. And we compared that to the secular view, which denies that intrinsic worth to the unborn child and dehumanizes it in order to justify killing it, usually but not always for reasons of self-interest. And today we continue with that series towards the end of life and how we remain image bearers with intrinsic value and worth up until our natural death. And we'll see the exact same competing principles from the secular view, denial of intrinsic worth in favor of dehumanizing the elderly and, in extreme cases, killing them in the name of self-interest. And while this issue isn't in the news or something we think about as often as abortion, we include it in this series because it's really an emerging frontier. It's an area where the culture has begun to really deeply diverge from what was previously widely agreed upon as right and good. So that's the intro, that's kind of where we've been, that's where we're going today, and so let me pray as we dive into this. Father God, uh, we thank you for your word, we thank you for the fact that it is authoritative in our life, we thank you for the fact that you teach us and give us this uh, handbook, an instruction book for life, and that all that is necessary for us to have a fruitful and enjoyable life is right there. And so we pray as we apply your word uh, to the issues of our time, Lord, that you'd give us grace to hear what you have to say through it, that you'd give us ears to hear uh, the wisdom that is in it, and that we would conform our lives to match what you are sharing with us through that. And so uh, we just come before you um, open and ready to receive what you have for us through your word today, particularly on this issue. We thank you for the people in our lives, the elders in our life that have been people who have shown us the way and taught us so much, and we pray that you would help us through this message and in our daily lives just to honor and respect them according to, according to your word and how you teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. So in order to really get our bearings for this, we have to start with the idea of youth and beauty and the fact that our culture has said definitively that happiness and freedom, those paramount values, are inextricably tied to youth and beauty. Americans are obsessed with both of those things. If you think about our most popular and highest paid people in our culture, they're almost all pop stars, actors, athletes, and models. 
all about youth and beauty. Occasionally, you'll see this guy on the next slide. But he's there entirely for comic relief. Like, the reason Mr. Bean is so funny, among other things, is because he's such a contrast to what we normally see. We see him and we're like, whoa, this is different. Let me find out what's going on. But most of the time, you're going to see this. This is the way you're constantly being sold stuff. And sometimes it's directly. This is a direct appeal to youth and beauty. It goes back to the 50s, where you can use a particular soap, and if you use that soap, you'll look like Ingrid Bergman slash Kepfrin Hepburn or whoever she's meant to look like, and you'll have a very handsome guy admiring you lovingly, all if you use that soap. And it's still today, whatever that product is that she uses, like you can look just like her, right, if you use that product. So we're, you're, getting, you're being sold makeup, you're being sold exercise equipment, you're being sold all kinds of things to get you to become more youthful and keep that beauty. And almost always, if it's not directly a product that will help you to that, then you're being sold youth and beauty for any other number of products. You're going to be sold youth and beauty to get you to buy potato chips and pizza, which are things that might not help you look youthful and beautiful. And there was an ad recently that I want to show you. This is probably the first time you're going to see an ad in church, but this, it, it, it acknowledges that fact really well. So let's, let's watch this. Research shows that people remember ads with young people having a good time. So to help you remember that Liberty Mutual customizes your home insurance, here's a pool party. So they're acknowledging it head on. We're showing you all these people having fun, and you'll associate that with insurance, and you'll want to go buy insurance. So they're just breaking down the fourth wall a little bit there and acknowledging what most other ads are doing to you without being obvious about it. They want you to think that eating Doritos will make you look like a supermodel. Again, it's pervasive. It's all over the place. Now, even when our culture dips its toe into so-called old age, which, by the way, you can define old age however you want to. I wouldn't dare try to do that. So if you think this applies to you, then God bless you. And if you think it doesn't, then that's fine, too. So to each his own with that. Um, when it does dip its toe into old age, it does so in the most sanitized way possible. And the recent example of this, have you seen the ads for The Golden Bachelor? I do not watch The Bachelor. I generally know the concept of it. But The Golden Bachelor is, instead of a young, handsome model, like of the type we've talked about before, The Golden Bachelor is this guy. He's 72 years old, Jerry Turner. He is the youngest-looking 72-year-old in the entire country. They did a, a nationwide search, and they found this guy. However, let's look at what he really looks like. That's the next photo. That's him in an interview with entertainment. And notice he hasn't got his hair colored in the one on the right. He hasn't been airbrushed, and he hasn't had a lot of tanner and makeup put on. So they, they make him look like he's... I mean, I have more gray hair than that guy does, and I'm 25 years younger than him. So they found, like, the youngest-looking 72-year-old, and then they made him up to look even younger than he actually is. So again, oh yeah, we're going to celebrate old age with the Golden Bachelor by giving you this archetype of an aging male. But it gets even worse with the next slide. These are his peers. These are the women who are the contestants on the show. 
They're all age-defying women. They're all thin, physically fit, and there's hardly gray hair in sight. There's two of them that have a little bit of gray there. I looked. <laughs> this is senior citizen bachelor. Does this look like aging to you? No. So the point is, you're being conditioned to value and celebrate youth. It's all around, it's pervasive. But the more the youth equals good message embeds itself in your mind, so does its corollary, which is age equals bad. So then the next question has to become, is aging bad? What are the negatives and the positives about growing older? I asked my 82-year-old father this question, and this is what he shared. He said, my memory isn't what it once was. I recall well things from long ago, but not always recent things. But on the other hand, I have no obligation of any kind to any business, so I can spend my time as I wish doing what I enjoy, which for him is church activities and some social clubs. He said that it was hard to watch my wife decline and then pass away and not be able to do anything about it. But we were married for 51 years, and when she got sick, I spent a lot of time with her, and she knew I loved her and supported her. He observed that he's slowing down and losing strength. There's physical decline that's happening. But he also said, I've become more patient and more loving as I've aged. My dad is an accomplished singer, so he observed that he can't reach the high notes like he once did. Uh, he's got a good hour of singing, and if it's going to be longer than that, he's going to struggle. Uh, but he also observed, I am able to give generously to causes I support, help out my kids and grandkids when needed, and not worry about money. He observed, I know I need to drive differently, and I had to stifle a laugh because I've driven with him, and it was one of the scariest experiences of my life. <clears throat> I hope he doesn't watch this. Um, so he describes it as, I know I need to drive differently. I would describe it a slightly different way, um, but uh, this is his words, not mine. Um, his, but on the other hand, the positive was that I enjoy spending time with my kids and grandkids. My brother and his wife and kids live there, so he sees them a lot. And he feels grateful and proud that they are all Christ followers. So that was his list. I probably have my own list, but um, I'll talk about that in a second. If you're a senior, you may have a similar list, or yours may be very different. And a lot of that will depend on how you are health-wise. That's a big, big part of that. And I would never have thought about this five years ago. I would not have had a list five years ago. But middle age has given me a list. Mine includes making sure I have my reading glasses with me in case I have trouble here, uh, slower metabolism, missing my pillow when I travel, but also the upsides are all the, the benefit of long-standing 25-year-old friendships and more, uh, career stability, and I have kids that are old enough to respond to reason. Those are the good things that my 40s have given me. So we recognize that there are pros and cons to our own aging. That's something that we're all going to experience if we're not already in it. And we've already seen our society tends to focus on the negative aspects. And it's easy to suddenly feel threatened by someone else's aging. So there's how you handle your own, but then there's how you handle somebody else's. And if life is about happiness and self-fulfillment, as radical expressive individualism teaches us, then what do you do with people who don't contribute to either one, but may actually endanger it? Not only not contribute to it, but endanger it. And this is the same question we wrestle with when it comes to abortion. And the answer hinges on our relationship to that person. 
Is it a wanted baby? Then we keep it. Is it a loved one who is aging? Then we endure it. And I have personal experience with that, as my dad alluded to in his answers. So my mom had Alzheimer's disease. And in the early years before we knew that diagnosis, it was exceptionally hard. There was a ton of misunderstandings, relationship tension, and anger because we didn't know what was happening. People saw it, and other people didn't see it, and there was, there was tension and conflict. And then we got a diagnosis. She was diagnosed with um, cognitive impairment and then eventually dementia. And then we transitioned from we know what's happening to now we have to go through it. We have the long goodbye, which is how they describe Alzheimer's disease very accurately. And we lost her. We lost her mentally first, and then we saw her physically decline and then pass away. But in the midst of that hardship, in the midst of that very difficult thing that we all went through, my dad most of all, uh, seeing my dad care for her so selflessly was incredibly beautiful. Seeing what marriage looks like when it gets to that for richer or for poorer part, and in sickness and in health, that, that part of it, was an incredible picture of Christ's love for us. And for me, being able to express my love and appreciation to both of them, to my mom, whether she heard it or not, and to my dad for how I saw her caring for my mom, and my appreciation for them and to them, and then sharing her story with others. I had lots of opportunities to talk about how amazing my mom was in the last years of her life. And there was something therapeutic about that. So yes, it was painful, but it was also something very beautiful, and God was definitely present in it. But what about when it isn't a loved one? How do we think about the aging of people we don't know? So remember point two of radical expressive individualism. Anything that threatens the pursuit of happiness and self-fulfillment should be reimagined or discarded. We don't discard our elderly people, do we? Do we? So we do largely keep them out of sight in nursing homes, retirement communities, or in their homes as shut-ins. And there's a place for that. There are some very good things that happen in a lot of those places. My mom absolutely needed a memory care unit when she got advanced in her disease. But there is a certain cultural convenience to keeping them mostly hidden. There's people that like the fact that they are not out and about as much, and they, they don't want to think about it, so just keep them over there. And I wish that was the extent of it, that it was just an issue of keeping people out of sight, out of mind, but it is not. So we have the dual concepts of assisted suicide, which is you end your own life, and euthanasia, which is someone does it for you, either because you, are, you asked for it or perhaps even if you didn't. So we have those concepts. And then recently I came across something that's just popped up on my Twitter or Facebook or some social media thing, and it was a video of Bill Gates at a place called the Aspen Institute. I don't know how old this video is, but he was talking about the concept of a death panel. That's the word he, words he used to describe it. And he said, oh, it's uncomfortable for us to talk about this, but we need to talk about that. And the death panel, the role of the death panel is, panel is that it would decide which ill patients with very expensive future medical bills should die so that the money can be used for other purposes. In his example, it was so that you can have 10 teachers that don't lose their jobs. So hear that clear carefully. He's basically, the reductionist argument is that 10 teachers are more valuable than one sick person. That's the core at what he's talking about here. And it's a little bit terrifying. Um, but people are having that conversation. Now they're having that conversation with healthcare rationing. 
And historically, unfortunately, he isn't the only one to think in such a way. If you go back 80 years, you'll see Action T4. This was a campaign of involuntary euthanasia in Nazi Germany. 300,000 people were killed in psychiatric hospitals in Germany, Austria, Poland, the Czech Republic. This included children. Uh, so it, it's, it's all across the spectrum. So th this is an, an, an age issue, but it's not only an age issue because we're talking about sick people as well. It's just that the overlap between unhealthy people and elderly people, there's a lot of it. And so, um, so this included children, and it focused on those with both physical and mental illnesses. And of course, the Nazis also gave us concentration camps, which if you were unlucky enough to be on a train heading to Auschwitz, and you got off that train, they separated into two groups. If you were under 13 or over 50, you went over here and you went straight to the gas chamber. And if you were between like 13 and 49 or so, then you went over here because you could work. And their only value to you was if you could work in the manual labor. No other value. It didn't matter what your education was, didn't matter whether skills you had, none of that mattered. It only mattered if you could work. And if you couldn't, they got rid of you. No intrinsic value, no intrinsic worth. Now, there's a long way between assisted suicide and concentration camps. I acknowledge that. So there's a long distance. But we know that the path between them, we know there's a path between them because humans have already walked it. We've already been there. We've already done this. And as the famous sign at Auschwitz says, it happened once, so it can happen again. We like to think, no, not us. We like to say, never again. But we could get there, because we have been there, so we can be there again. And in some cases, we have begun to walk that path. Euthanasia was legalized in the Netherlands in 2001 with certain guardrails. A couple of those guardrails are, it had to have been requested by the patient with, who is at least 12 years old. So as long as you're 12 years old and up, you can request euthanasia. The patient's condition has to be hopeless and unbearable. There can be no alternative treatment available, and a second physician concurs with these assessments. Those are the guardrails around euthanasia in the Netherlands since 2001. Now, legally, there are a ton of loopholes here things that you can easily exploit, and people have been exploiting them. Question, how do you prevent someone from being coerced into requesting it? How is a 12-year-old going to necessarily make that decision? Should we be asking 12-year-olds to make that decision? And how can we prevent someone from being just with caregivers or with family or someone who wants an insurance payout not be planting and pushing that idea, you should die, you should die? That happens. What about hopeless and unbearable? What's that? What is hopeless and unbearable? Who gets to decide what is hopeless and unbearable? Does it the patient? Is it a doctor? Who gets to decide that? Second, thirdly, no alternative treatment available. What exactly does that mean? Is an alternative treatment, if it, what if it costs a lot of money? What if there's only a certain number of people that can get the alternative treatment? And you have to make a decision about which 10 people can get that and which can't. We have a real example of that. It's not a life and well, it is a life. The proton beam therapy here in, in Rochester, those gantries are running almost 24 hours a day because they just can't keep up with the demand. So how do we decide who gets proton beam and who doesn't when that could save your life? 
There's a resource scarcity, and so people are making choices about who gets the treatment and who doesn't. And then the final one, a second physician concurs with these assessments. Do you think you could find, if you're a physician, do you think you could find another physician to agree with whatever it is that you're suggesting if that person reports to you or if you control their career future? Oh, yeah, you could get someone to agree to it because you can manipulate them. There's all kinds of ways in which this can get abused, and it is being abused. There are reports since 2001 of people who were ultimately involuntarily euthanized because you could get around this stuff. So we've heard it. And naturally, the guardrails have been moved. This isn't, this isn't the only thing they're going to ask for. Once this happens, then you start to expand. So in 2004, we have the Groningen Protocol. And that is a movement in the Netherlands to expand euthanasia to infants under the age of one. So there's the subjective, hopeless, and unbearable suffering that must be present, and the parents have to agree to it. The infant, like the unborn baby, has no say in the matter. So that's not law yet in the Netherlands, but it's been happening. There have been many infants under the age of four with spina bifida and other conditions that have been euthanized, and there have been no charges brought against doctors that participate in that. So it's de facto law. It has not legally been passed, but it is happening, so it is de facto. Now, assisted suicide bills, we have them in Minnesota every year. At least as far back as 2016, we've had an assisted suicide bill go up before. It's never passed. It's never made it out of committee to a floor vote yet either, as far as I know. It will be introduced again in 2024. It will. I can guarantee you that. Um, these has guardrails. These bills have guardrails as well, but they also can be easily manipulated. And here are just a few ways you can easily manipulate the guardrails around an assisted suicide bill. They do it through a lethal cocktail of drugs. That's how they do assisted suicide, or will do it, uh, and how they are doing it in the states that have legalized it. And I think we have about 18 in states in the U.S. where it's legal. Once the lethal drug has been dispensed, there's no safeguards to prevent pressure, coercion, or abuse. So again, if that gets in the hands of a caretaker who really wants to see you gone, they can have their way with it. There's no oversight. No one's required to witness the death. Public and private insurers have a financial incentive to steer patients towards suicide rather than expensive life-extending treatment. And some patients in states with assisted suicide have been denied treatment and offered assisted suicide instead because it's cheaper. Some patients receiving the lethal drugs have suffered from depression, which is often treatable. So instead of saying, what's the medication we need to get you on to help you deal with that depression, it's, let's just have you commit suicide, because that'll be easier, when they would have gotten better and not wanted that anymore with the proper medication. And then finally, the bill says only patients with a prognosis of six months or less to live are eligible, but these predictions are often unreliable. And in states with similar laws, some patients who have qualified for assisted suicide but not gone through with it have gone on to live for years. So there's all kinds of problems with these sorts of legislation, whether it's in the Netherlands or whether it's coming here. These laws cheapen life when they assert that death is better. Better for who? A strictly utilitarian view of life leads eventually to elder genocide, and discarding that which gets in the way of my happiness and self-fulfillment. That's the end result of so many of these things. There is, however, a much better way. 
And we see a marked difference in some of cultures than ours in how they deal with this. Consider the Japanese model. Now, Japan, Japan has like 29% of their population is over the age of 65, and they have more centenarians than any other country in the world. They're dealing with elderly people in their society a lot more than we are. So how have they dealt with that? Have they, have they embraced euthanasia and assisted suicide? No, they haven't. Instead, there's a culture of respect and honor for elders in Japan. Why is that? Well, there's a couple of reasons for it. But first, I want to say they have an entire holiday dedicated to elderly people. It's called Respect for the Aged Day, and it's been a holiday there for about 60 years. It's the third Monday in September, so it was September 18th this year. And on that day, it's always on a Monday, so you have the weekend off, so you're able to travel home and visit with your elderly relatives. Um, there's, it's a time to reflect upon the contributions the older generations have made to society and family life. It's a time to celebrate the local elderly community. You visit your relatives. Um, local school children visit care homes, serve lunch to residents. The national news always features stories talking about the accomplishments of elderly people in the country. They also use an honorific language called Kaigo, or Kago. I don't know how you pronounce it. I don't speak Japanese. Um, and it's just a different way of speaking to elders as you, than you would for casual conversation or even business acquaintances. You use, like, you may have heard it, san, S-A-N, you add that to the end when you're addressing them. But there's other forms it takes, too. So when you speak to elders, you use a slightly different language there. And then finally, it's a big part of their culture because of Confucian and Taoist and Buddhist philosophy. Um, these have contributed a lot to the culture there and form that culture, so they associate old age with maturity and with wisdom. They describe it as a time of rebirth after a busy period of working and raising children. And in addition, they have the idea of filial piety, which is the children should honor their parents, and that promotes the importance of continued respect and care of their elderly parents. Now, these ideas are not unique to Confucius. We find them in the Bible, too. And yet, for some reason, maybe the reasons that I started with about our obsession with youth and beauty, we don't have the same culture here that they do as far as how we treat our elders. Why is that? And I don't have the answer for you. I think that has a lot to do with the youth and beauty stuff, but that's something for you to think about. Why do we not have the same cultural respect built in uh, for respect for elders that Japan does when we have some very similar themes in the in the philosophies that have built our countries. So let's look at what does the Bible say. Let's get into the Word and see where is this ethic in Scripture, and are we following it effectively? Now we start with Genesis 1.27, which is the theme and the through line for this entire series. In his image. God created mankind in his image, in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. That's the baseline right there. But there's so much more to it than that. And as you listen to these verses, we're going to go through a lot of them quickly. Which of these apply to you and how? Where do you hear and see yourself? What are the ones that challenge you especially? Which are the ones that say, wow, I need to do differently because it's different than how I think? So ask the Lord and the Spirit to speak to you right now and lead you into whatever application he would have for you. So number one, and this is one of the ones that Bob read, as you age, know that the Lord has promised to take care of you. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you, and I will carry you. I will sustain you, and I will rescue you. So don't despair. If, if physic, 
Basically, you're feeling challenges, don't despair. Know that he's gonna take care of you and sustain you. Number two, <clears throat> older adults are wise. Job 12.12, 12. Bob read that one as well. Is not wisdom found among the aged? Does not long life bring understanding? And then we see in 1 Kings 12, Solomon, the wisest man of all time, his son Rehoboam, consulted with the elders, the people who advised his dad, and who probably had a lot of that wisdom rub off on them. So he asked what he should do in a certain situation to those elders, and then he asked his buddies, young guys like him, and he went with the advice of his buddies, and the result was he split the kingdom. It was a terrible decision to ignore those that had the wisdom in his life and to go with those who were uh, young and reckless. So young people in the church, and again, self-select who you are, you're surrounded by fathers and mothers who have much to share with you and that you would benefit from receiving. So don't be like Rehoboam, only talking to the people who are your peers. Rely on the wisdom of those that are around you. Take advantage of them. Number three, older adults are worthy of respect. Leviticus 19.32, stand up in the presence of the aged, show respect for the elderly, and revere your God. I am the Lord. 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. And Proverbs 2 from Proverbs, listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. The glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. And then on another one from Proverbs, gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. It's totally changing my opinion about having my beard turn gray. First uh, Peter 5, 5, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So kids, respect your and your parents, and obey them, especially you two. Um, basically, the, your, your parents aren't perfect. They aren't perfect, but they know more than you on pretty much everything except Slack, TikTok, Twitch, Roblox, and a few other things. So rely on that wisdom. And then fourth, older adults have a special calling. The idea that the aged have no utility is a tragic lie. Psalm 71, we read, Since my youth, God, you have taught me, and to this day, to this day, I declare, actively, I declare your marvelous deeds. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. In Deuteronomy 32.7, a similar theme. Remember the days of old and consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you your elders and they will tell you. And Psalm 92.12-14, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in their old age. They are ever full of sap and green, proclaiming the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no wickedness in him. So fellow middle-agers like me and those who are my seniors, <clears throat> don't get out of the game. You have a story to tell. You have things that you've seen, ways that you've seen the Lord work in your life, in powerful ways, and you have a responsibility and an obligation to share those stories with the next generation. Tell them, train them up in the way in which they should go. There's no retirement from serving the Lord. We get to retire from our work. Praise the Lord for that. And my dad is living his best life, not having to work anymore. But he's staying engaged, and I love that. 
He's still serving in his church. He's still singing in his choir. He's still doing stuff with the kids' ministry. We have opportunity. We can't pull back from that because we have a calling and a task to do that these verses share to declare God's goodness to the generations to come. So you have intrinsic value. You have worth. You have utility. You have, because you are, all of us, are made in the image of God. So the conclusion for all of this is that we should value life from conception to natural death, just as our creator does, treat it with dignity and respect those who are ahead of us in this journey that we may both care for them and learn from them. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much uh, again for your word because where would we be without it? And, and you have shown us a better way than the way that so many in the world are following. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember this better way, that we would follow this better way, that we would respect the elders in our life and turn to them and seek out mentorship and seek out discipleship from those who are ahead of us in this, and that we, as we age, would see the beauty in that and the goodness in that, Lord, and the way that you grow us um, and help us to evermore follow you and become more like you. And I pray that if we are in our senior years, that we would not give up the fight and retire out of of serving you, Lord, but that we would always have a zeal for passing on the word to the next generation and to proclaim the good things that you have done, Lord. Thank you that you can use all of us, no matter what age and stage of life that we're at, and that there's beauty and there's dignity in each one of those places, in each one of those stages, Lord, that you are sustaining us through that. You are using us for the sake of your name. And so, Father, I thank you, I praise you for that, and I pray that we would all be transformed by your word into people who follow you more closely. In Jesus' name, amen.